So I think we're good. All right. Well, welcome to the Tragedy Academy, a show created to bridge societal divides in a judgment-free zone using candor and humor. My name is Jay. What's going on today, Gary? How you doing, bud? Great. How you doing? Living the dream. We are joined today by sports broadcaster and author Peter Young. How are you doing today, Peter? Guys, I'm fine. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us, and uh, thanks for taking on this really uh, difficult topic. You want to tell us... Uh, where you're from and what you're here to discuss today? Sure. Born and raised in New Jersey, went to school in D.C., played college basketball, was going to be the next Larry Bird. That didn't happen. And then I got into coaching, was going to be the next John Wooden. That didn't happen. Then I got into sports broadcasting, was going to be the next Bob Costas, and that didn't happen. Along the way, I moved out to Idaho and then Montana, fell in love with the woman of my dreams, who unfortunately happened to be um, brainwashed and enmeshed and under control of a small cult leader. And I, you know, knew at the time the guy was odd, it was Uncle Robert. And then over the course of about 20 years, he took over our lives. I too was brainwashed, rescued, recovered, thanks to my faith, friends and family and got out. And then I wrote a book about it. Now here I am, I talk about it because while it was a horrible experience, I tried to use my story as a cautionary tale to help enlighten and warn others. I think that's a, uh, a great segue into what we're going to discuss today, because I feel like um, our show tends to tackle something that I consider masks. Um, I think that we wear them throughout our lives and we play to different types of roles or whatever reality has been pitched to us. And I feel like cults or that word, some people are probably going to say they think when they hear the word cult, they're going to think of the major leaders out there, the Kool-Aid, the whole nine yards. But what we're discussing today is not necessarily the traditional word for cult, right? Well, okay. Or the when, traditional when think of cult. description. Sure. So when people think of cults, they might think of uh, Jonestown, drinking Kool-Aid, mm-hmm. uh, Heaven's Gate, uh, Waco, David Crush, et cetera. But cults at their core, because people do have a hard time with it. It's a very emotional, triggering word. At their core, they are undue mind control. So even though they all look different, they all have in common undue, manipulative, coercive mind control. So cults can be tiny. Cults can be just a a few people. And that's what ours was. And I remember when I got out and healed, I was thinking, oh, come on. It wasn't a cult. Yeah, it was bad. It was unhealthy. Then I started reading books on cults and was like, you were a cult. And I think they're more prevalent than we know. It's amazing what we gain in our prescription lenses in retrospect. When we're allowed to take those experiences and then go back and review them with that new set of glasses that we got from going through it, all those signs are really obvious. But when you're walking through them, they are not. And I try to tell people when they beat themselves up after a situation, they're like, well, I should have seen X, Y, or Z. I'm like, well, if you had seen X, Y, or Z, you would have been the perpetrator, right? Well, because I, yeah, you don't I, understand X, Y, Z. You're not capable of being that kind of human. Yeah. So what I like to say is no one ever knows they're in a cult. You only know you were in a cult. Because again, mm. with the undue mind control, the moment that you or I, Gary J, that we can say, boy, guys, you know what? This feels like a cult. Then at that moment, the mind control has just been starting to break like ice. And you're no longer fully under the control. It might be hard getting out of it. So then no one ever joins a cult. 
No one ever says, I'm going to join a cult. No one ever thinks they're in a cult. I do like the idea of like a signature and a whole like thing. It sounds ridiculous. Like, like I'm going to join, yeah. you know, like yeah. they're joining a sports league or something. <laughs> right. Drafted by. Right. Or on their business card, you know, cult leader. Call here. You know, my <laughs> I think that that should be on a lot of business cards that are out there. <laughs> I feel like we're missing yeah, that Like title. a lot. Yep. Like most corporations. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that's, that's an interesting comment that you made because I, I've, again, I've read a lot about this now. I don't pretend to be the expert on cults. I'm the expert on what happened to me. Mm. And I was in one. I was brainwashed for a few years, got out and recovered. So now I do read a lot and I'm fascinated by it. So a lady that grew up in a cult and then joined the army. And she wrote the book Uncultured. It's very well done. Mm. And she makes the point that um, there is a difference between a true cult and cultures that might be very manipulative or unhealthy. So when she joined the army, she's a boot camp getting screamed at. She's thinking that I just joined another cult. And through the process of the book, she realizes, no, I didn't join a cult. The army's not a cult. A lot of businesses aren't cults. Maybe political movements aren't cults. They may be very dysfunctional cultures and unhealthy, but there's a difference. And she described it very well. Is cult? Short for it's culture. It just seems like when you said that, it didn't. It fell too close together for me not to have like a little <laughs> bell go off. Sometimes words are rooted in things, but right. Um, and I could see how that would be related. Gary, you were going to say something. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could definitely see there's a difference, but I think maybe there's some companies or corporations or something like that that may start to cross the line over, depending on the types of manipulation and the things that they're using to like keep people or you know, to keep, uh, you know, the ideology that they have that crosses over into personal life. You know, I, you know, I was kind of making a joke, but like also, like I've seen some companies or, you know, corporations that like really like people follow the line. And like, if they don't, they're, you know, like they think that their life's over or that right. they can't go on without it more is just like fired and go get another job. And kind of right. Well, that's, you're alluding to the amount of self someone dedicates to a job. Um, and some people do associate themselves, their entire ego, personality, livelihood, anything and everything is associated with the mask that they worked on for the last X amount of years. And the moment that you take just a little chip to it, it fractures everything about them. They have no idea what to do. Well, it's interesting you bring up mask because this just kind of dawned on me that for many cult members, I would certainly include myself in our little cult, which was, again, maybe about 12 adults, wasn't, wasn't very mm -hmm. many, is that the mask really becomes kind of a function of the cult leader. So one other, um, I guess, the you know, point that all cults have is they have a cult leader, and they're usually quite easy to spot, very narcissistic, controlling, grandiose sense of self, make all the rules, but none of them apply to them, et cetera, et cetera. And so you all kind of become um, part of his or for identity, usually his, but part of his identity. Mm -hmm. And then also in terms of a mask hiding things, cult leaders control their members through isolation, secrecy, and paranoia. So cult leaders don't go out and create websites and advertise, right, for their cult. They're always trying to keep it quiet and hidden. Unless Only they're recruiting you know. Next. Life. Only you know. Next. Right. Only you know. I, I, right. I get exactly what you're saying. That compartmentalization of each individual that you're sharing this secret with becomes right. almost a, uh, a war within itself. Everybody is against everybody without knowing that they're even against them. Well, they're all paranoid. Everybody's paranoid. 
I know I was, I was terrified of Uncle Robert near the end because um, I knew that there was the potential which came to reality that, you know, I could lose my marriage, I could lose my family. It could all be destroyed if I was not obsequious enough towards Uncle Robert, Israel Ahmed's Robert Booty. So we took this interview relatively quickly um, when we reached out to you. So I did not get to do as much as I normally would in the way of research. Typically, I read the books um, and take some time to, to reflect on them. I got about halfway through your book. And okay. I got to tell you, um, what first of all, you're a brilliant writer. You paint a very good picture. Um, you speak very well, obviously, sportscaster. You've, you've got this down. That said, um, the way that you portray, or not portray, the way that this individual is brought into your life in small increments, in shadows, and in small ways, really speaks volumes about exactly what you're talking about. That shadow, hidden self, the I don't tell everybody everything about me in front of everyone, only in slices. It's really, really weird watching him pop up in the book. I was like, when is he going to show his face? His first one, I was thinking, as I was going through the first chapters, I'm like, this guy just sounds bad. Who's <laughs> Uncle Robert? And as you as you allude to how he is behind a family and still maintaining his anonymity while controlling is what makes it so intriguing to read. And you want to see where it's going. Right. Well, and then I can just tell you the last, let's say, half the third of the book is, is pretty intense. It's pretty hard to get through, uh, you know, the emotional and mental abuse control laid on me at a time where I was defenseless. It's pretty bad. But, you know, the, the phrase that would be used, which is really a biblical verse, would be about don't throw your pearls before the swine. You've probably heard that phrase. It does come from the Bible. The idea of don't throw your pearls before your swine is the pearls of wisdom. In other words, Uncle Robert was too brilliant, too smart. That if we shared it with our friends and relatives, they wouldn't get it. They don't understand. So instead of wasting his pearls of wisdom and sharing them with people who then might be a threat to us and Uncle Robert, we're going to keep it to ourselves. We're going to circle the wagons. And oh, by the way, only Uncle Robert truly knows the threat to mankind, which was a raving anti-Semite. And so he believed that all of recorded history was basically a struggle between Jews and Christians. Goes back to the Bible. It's a fascinating theory. I think it's wrong. But um, because of this, you know, we had to uh, shred our trash. We couldn't say uh, Jew or Gentile or Israel or certain words on the cell phone because, of course, Jews were listening in. And they were a threat to Uncle Robert, and thus a threat to all of us. On and on and on and on. So therefore, if we are privy to his pearls of wisdom, only we know the truth, the true gospel. And if others don't, they are going to be a threat to us. So now we're even more paranoid. Now we're even more protective of Uncle Robert because now we're special, right? That's what I was going to say. He gave you a certain level of specialness to feel that you've been entrusted with something that other people are not capable of understanding or having. That's pretty gross. And it's very typical of cult leaders because of the grandiose sense of self, right? And so then they bring along their followers with them. Only we know the true gospel. Unfortunately, you know, as a Christian, this is far too common where people will then say, well, I have the true insight to the Bible. And then they just completely skew it and make it mean something totally different than what the Word of God is meant to mean. So then if this one person has the truth, then his followers, as you say, are now special. We are all special. And so we didn't go out recruiting others, right? We were not on the street corner 
trying to sell flowers, raise money, or bring other people in, or record Uncle Robert on podcasts. We kept him hidden. We hid him from others, which should have been a red flag, right? You would think, well, wait a minute. If he's so sublime and brilliant and his understanding of the gospel is so spot on, why aren't we sharing this with everybody? Why are we hiding him? Mm-hmm. And that goes back to the brainwashing. You know, when you're, you don't know you're in a cold. And for years, I didn't. Yeah. It's tough because it's like if if someone's training to fight and you don't even know what a fight is, they're going to eat you. So, like, these guys train and practice manipulation mm-hmm. and, and test it out on other people. And you're going through life not knowing that this type of person or this evil exists and that somehow 100%. you might be in this battle one day. So he's, he's starting to play this game with you that you don't even know you're playing and then eases his way into it. And he's great at it. It's what he does. He studies, learns, gets better at it, you know. So Robert was uh, certainly a narcissist, a very, very smart man, very brilliant, had obviously a strong knowledge of psychology. And for many years, I just went along to get along with my wife. So I had heard about this mysterious Uncle Robert before I even met Paige, my future wife, and fell in love quickly. But after about a week or two of dating, I was 90% sure I want to marry her. But I needed to meet this mysterious Uncle Robert and her father because she talked about him all the time. So when I finally met Uncle Robert, I thought, well, you know, he's, he's interesting, uh, eccentric, but relatively harmless. Mm-hmm. I was wrong. So then for years, you know, she adored him, revered him. I knew he wasn't going away. So I would just come go along to get along with her. And I remember the big moment for me would have been about, uh, let's say maybe about a year after 9-11. I grew up in New Jersey. So I had high school mm. classmates in the buildings. I had a high school classmate who was widowed that day. So 9-11 comes shit home for me. And then about a year afterwards, we were at one of our conferences. We would call them a conference that was basically us sitting around in the living room listening to Uncle Robert talk all day. And yeah. he talked about how uh, on 9-11, 80,000 people died. And I thought it was more like 3,000. And then he started going to history about how Truman was a Jew and Roosevelt was a Jew. And he kind of spat out the words. And I grew up, again, with Jewish friends, with, with Catholic, with all kinds of friends. You know, like a melting pot, right? Mm. But the way he said it was such venom. And that was my first introduction to his anti-Semitism. Because he came from Syria. He was born and raised in Syria. So he kind of brought that with him and then kind of wove it into his theology. And I remember telling my wife that night, I said, I think this guy's dangerous. I had no idea he thought these things. I don't think we should have anything to do with him. She listened politely, but I never followed up. And of course, we never got rid of him. And it only got worse from then on. Mm-hmm. You know, and I look back, that was 23 years ago. And, you know, like you said, hindsight can be 2020. It is always, but it can be 2020. Mm-hmm. And if I had, you know, kind of put my foot down and kind of, you know, forced the confrontation with Uncle Robert. You know, two years into our marriage instead of 20, would Paige have left me then? Maybe. I don't know.
hindsight sucks because it's into a non-existent realm. Yeah. Like none of what we want to have happened could have happened because it didn't. And to speculate whether or not we should have is still, it's painting a picture that doesn't exist. Yeah, it can be educational. You know, there was, let me kind of lead into this this way. Cult leaders never just spout nonsense right away. They don't lure people in by no. sounding crazy, right? They lure you in by sounding really good. I mean, after all, Uncle Robert would read the Bible to us, right? And he knew the Bible really well. But then, like, if you miss hit a golf ball by, like, what, this much, eighth of an inch, down the fairway 100 yards, it's going to be way off to the left or way off to the right. So mm. five, 10 years down the road of Uncle Robert giving each and every Bible verse his spin, we're way away from the Bible, okay? So all that's to lead him to say that there were some things that he shared with me that I thought were quite valuable. One of them was he loved Eckhart Tolle. You probably oh, Eckhart Tolle is great. And I, you know, there's parts of his books that I think, no thanks, are way out there, but parts of uh, The Power of Now, I think are brilliant. And you, you can only live here, right here and right now. And, and you know, there were some things about that. There you go. He's got her. Yeah, dude, we, I, I talk about that book because I do <laughs> love now. Because I don't believe that there's a past and a future. Um, that's why I think that it's so beautiful that we have a present, and it's called that for a reason. Yeah, you know, there's how many books try and talk about that, right? Dude. Dozens of books try and talk about being in the present moment. I just think Eckhart Tolle does a pretty good job with it. He does. I'm not going to believe with everything he says, but his you know, description of, you know, past, regret, and the future, anxiety, is brilliant. True. And so the, all that to say for me, I share that because Again, cult leaders are often very smart individuals who will use mm. excellent information to gain your trust. And then once you get in, you know, five, 10 years down the road, you're like, how did I get here? And uh, it's hard to see at the beginning. There was a line in the book that said, when Uncle Robert was present, all Jack saw was a mirror reflecting his ugliness. Mm. That uh, was my former father-in-law. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's fascinating how they met. So Robert came over from Syria, who he was born into a Christian family, uh, you know, surrounded by uh, Islam and hatred of Jews, uh, comes over to America and embraces Americanism, you know, uh, Christianity, uh, limited government, et cetera, freedom, individual responsibility, and then goes to a seminary in California, small seminary, and meets Jack, uh, my future father-in-law, who, you know, as a kind individual, but was clearly right for a guy like Robert to manipulate him. So Jack and his wife, Kathy, my former mother-in-law, you know, have been really under his thumb mentally, emotionally, and spiritually for 50 years, 50 plus years. They call him dad. They're about the same age, but they call Robert dad. And, um, you know, that line in the book, my book is Stop the Tall Man and Save the Tiger, was from a reflection Jack gave years later after our marriage. So I married Jack's oldest daughter. And at the wedding that day, we had no idea, but he has thoughts of suicide because Uncle Robert mm -hmm. was there. And he had been convinced by Uncle Robert that he was a fraud, a demonic fraud. It was not truly a Christian and saved. He'd been faking it all these years. So, of course, now that Uncle Robert has done that to this poor individual, made him believe he's a demonic fraud, he then swoops in about a year later and, quote, unquote, saves Jack, which Robert then did with Jack's wife and Jack's daughter, my wife, and then eventually me which is why Jack saw himself as horrible, as a cockroach of a father. Well, I would say because, that the narcissist right? is very good at creating a mirror for your imperfections. 
They want you to see the worst things about yourself when they look at you so that they are always inferior and that anything that you tell them will give them a better life. You know, in the Christian faith, there is the idea that there is victory um, with Christ. You you have conquered death, right? You 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 uh, improve because you have become saved. You are now a child of God. So there's victory in Christ, right? This this idea of here's life's going to get better. But with Robert and then my former in-laws, it was never that way. Like he was always a new babe or a new Christian who was always fumbling and getting it wrong and barely a Christian, but Uncle Robert's going to let us slide versus Jack and the rest of us being able to mature and grow in our faith. That never happened. You were never able to do that because he wouldn't let you. Another story, which is fascinating. So in the Bible, it says that we have all sinned, right? And it's plural. <laughs> and, and I can tell you that's for sure. I'm not perfect. That's why I need to be saved, right? That's the whole idea. Robert told all of us and claimed that he had sinned one time in his entire life. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to laugh. It's Just, okay. I'm like, I sinned on the way to here with my coffee. Like, I swear I know I did. This fucker only did it once. <laughs> so like for Americans, it is funny. It's funny to laugh. It's funny. It's like, you know, back then, of course, we wouldn't have laughed. It's like saying I don't poop. Yeah. <laughs> so like we would like, get kind of quiet and reverent around 9-11. Hope you don't, don't say any jokes about 9-11 uh, or Pearl Harbor, right? At least these seminal moments of death and destruction for growth in American life, right? And, and when, when Walker Robert would talk about the one time he sinned, it became that same way, very solemn, quiet, you could hear a pin drop, almost tears in everybody's eyes. He was a child and his father giving him instructions on how to use this little sling as a boy there in Syria. They disobeyed his father and threw the rock without looking where he's going, and he killed a little lamb. My God, he did a whole David and Goliath story about his sin? And For the love of Pete? Yep. <laughs> oh, my God. And, and so it's very calculated because then, of course, I would, you know, inwardly, I wouldn't dare say a word I saw, uh, you know, out loud. Inwardly, I rolled my eyes like, you've got to be kidding. Come right. on. Even when I was brainwashed, there were still points where I was like, really? Come on. Oh, yeah, but your uncle can be cool and still tell you big fish stories. Right. That was a big fish story. That was a really big fish story. But the point is, it's calculated because then he is further above us and we are further below. Thus, the control mechanism so that we will look up to him. So therefore, my my in-laws would call him dad. We called him Uncle Robert, even though he wasn't related. I'm six foot five. Uh, you know, tall and thin, former athlete. My wife was six foot, beautiful, blonde, blue eyes. Robert Booty is like five, six, you know, bald, <laughs> olive complexion, jet black hair, and he's got a belly. He shouldn't have been like a WWF wrestler with that name, <laughs> Bob Booty. And he's not like, <laughs> he missed his calling, man. Not cult leader. He should be in the WWE. Your name's Bob Booty. <laughs> That's what you should be doing. Not hurting people like this. Sorry, I don't take anything too seriously too long. That's okay. That's okay. So, um, you know, most of what he did would have been uh, very calculated. So then, of course, he only sinned once. At one of our conferences, we would tell our testimony. A testimony for the Christian faith is simply, what has God done for you? Well, you know, he saved me, right? So that's, you tell the story of how you became a Christian and what the Lord has done for you. That's your testimony. Simple as that. And we would all tell ours 
And of course, mine got ripped to shreds. And then they, my wife and, and Uncle Robert and everybody else didn't think I was a Christian. I wasn't saved because you had to go through it. Yeah, I read that. Your, your wife actually told you at one point that she did not believe that you were saved at all before you even went down the path with her. Yep. So the, the title of the book, Stop the Tall Man, Save the Target, you might be thinking, where did you get that from? I do believe that the Lord could speak to us in dreams. He's God. Why not? He can do whatever he wants. Paige had a dream right before we met, and Uncle Robert was able, she shared the dream with him. To her, it was very important, uh, and it was very important. And he shared the dream with her, and he was able to completely twist the meaning of the dream to where he was the hero, when in reality, the dream was to warn Paige about him. And I have a small role on the tall man um, in the dream, and... Um, by his ability to twist the dream around and make him the hero, I then became the, you know, the villain. And uh, so maybe not the villain. Did someone then, would actually steal your dream, insert themselves into it to be able to maintain a position of control? Absolutely. Yeah. Paige had been baptized a few months before the dream, but Uncle Robert didn't do the baptism. He wasn't even there. He was livid. Oh, he had to be pissed. So part of this long letter that he wrote detailed that. Of course, he said, you know, I'm, uh, I wasn't offended. But then he took a couple pages to describe how offended he was. And then he went into her dream. And in the dream, there's a tall man that comes in to kind of rescue her. But she can't see the face of the tall man. Again, Robert Booty's about 5'6". I'm 6'5". And she couldn't see the face of the tall man in the dream because we met like a month later. And again, I mean, I could describe the dream to you and anybody with, with half a brain could say, well, I know what that means. It's obvious. But then in this long letter, uh, Uncle Robert wrote to Paige, he tries to say, you know, tall man in the dream, you know, but, you know, tall in the illusory, but, or, you know, tall in the illusory, but, but short in real life. In other words, he was trying to claim he was the tall man, even though he's literally like five, six. So he tried Holy, to insert he himself. he had a dream Napoleon going on. Yep. And <laughs> Paige was Sorry, vulnerable. Man. Yeah, Paige was vulnerable and she believed it. So then therefore she's like, well, I must not have been saved. So she allows Robert to save her. And then that line that you talked about, um, Jay, where then she, she comes back to my apartment and says, well, you know, in her mind, she you know, two plus two equals four. Yeah, Peter he saved her save. in a car, right? On a ride? Yeah. yeah a yeah. drive somewhere? Yeah. Drove, he drove, her, drove her to the airport you know, up in Spokane. And uh, so then when she comes back to see me, of course, you know, she sees how hard it was for her to be saved. She needed Uncle Robert. Well, Peter can't be saved because he's never met the guy. What a and, gatekeeper. Um, yeah, exactly. Tell me what a gatekeeper is to you. For God. So, sure. So, in the Bible, the, the only, one only gatekeeper is Jesus Christ. So the one way into eternal life and into heaven is through Jesus Christ. So, anybody who tries to get into, let's say, they call it the sheepfold. You know, the great shepherd is Jesus and the sheep. There's wolves that try and break in. Okay, so anybody tries to go around as a wolf. Uncle Robert tries to set himself up as the gatekeeper. That's where that phrase comes from, by the way. It comes from the Bible. Whereas Christ is the gate that someone would get into the sheepfold to be one of the lambs. Uh, the gatekeeper then takes Christ out and puts himself in there. And I am the only way to salvation and, and whatever else you believe in. I, Uncle Robert. And it's the almost like you can put any religion behind that gate. And yes. put a person in front of it, and it sure. creates the same effect. So for those of you out there that you're hearing one specific religion being spoken about, doesn't mean that it is not applicable to a million other scenarios, religions, right. beliefs, or any kind of motive. 
Yeah, but that's where that phrase comes from, and that's what it means. Yeah, no, that, I think that's amazing. Um, and I think that gatekeeping anything that is as sacred as freedom within our reality, which can be described as, you know, being accepted by God, or it could be nirvana, or it could be, you know, whatever it is personally to somebody, right? But for someone to put themselves in between one human and that is taking away every single bit of our experience. It's robbing someone of reality by placing themselves in that spot. Yeah. And the reason they're doing that, going back to the mind control, is to control that person. And that 100%. Probably, yeah, it's, a, it's just another way of describing mind control. He didn't like it that she got it on her own. He had to take it back and then reissue it to her on his terms. Yeah, it's very common in the entertainment industry, too. You know, you meet all these people and I'm the only way to be an actor. Or I'm the only way to be a musician. Like, it has to come through me. And if you don't come through me, I'll, I'll blacklist you. Like, you know, people use that for to hook up with people or to take their money or percentage of earnings or all kinds of stuff. You know, like this is the only way into Hollywood. This is the only way into the music industry. If you don't come through me, like you're nothing, you're not going to make it out. No one will ever hire you, that kind of thing. And I think when someone wants it so bad, they want to be an actor so bad or they want to be saved or they want to be a Christian or like whatever. And if you convince them that you're the only way through, that's it's really a powerful way to control somebody. And for me, the extra level of control, Gary, you're absolutely right. For me, the extra level of control was that my wife, who I loved and adored, uh, revered this man. So she believed everything he said. So, you know, here we are 12, 15, 18 years into this marriage. And, you know, again, 12, 15 years in, I realized that she did not respect and adore me the way she did him or her father. Uh, I was always, you know, too immature. She used that word a lot. And then Several years in, it was like, you know, I could just tell she didn't think I was a Christian. So, of course, then I knew, even though in the back of my mind, I knew this was not right. But I knew that the only way she would ever believe I was is if I went through Robert Booty, Uncle Robert. So then I tried it like four or five times. And so for, you know, 16, 17 years of really thinking that this guy was, you know, for, for the first few years, kind of a quack, a nut job. And then, oh, my gosh, he's more than a nut job. I don't want him anywhere near me. To finally accepting him. Okay. To then I think he's brilliant. So now three years, I'm, I'm brainwashed, two and a half, three years. Um, the, the control or the way that happened, I don't think would have if I hadn't been in love with my wife who <clears throat> adored him. So I'm around all these other adults in my family, the greater young family. So my parents, my brothers and their families, they're all over the coast. They don't live with us in Montana. So they didn't really know what was going on. I'm mostly spending time with all the other adults in this little cult. And I'm the only guy it's kind of rolling their eyes when I'm hearing the story about the little lamb, right? <laughs> so eventually I just got worn out, beaten down. Man. To have faith stolen from you, to have your identity stolen from you or written for you, I feel like he was drawing a picture of you without your permission. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting way to put it. Well, um, you know, cult leaders don't ask permission very often. No, um, absolutely not. <laughs> I do like the idea of one though well. asking first. I mean, it would make a cult taste a lot better. Like if they yeah. were like, hey, you, you want cult or cult light? What do you want? But he also was brilliant 
Uh, and I hate to, you know, give him these positive terms, but he was. You and, should, and, though, because people won't recognize these people for who they are if they're yeah. not described correctly. They are yeah. brilliant because they took someone as intelligent as you and were able to walk you through these things just based on your relationships with people that you trusted. He was able to right. use your trust for someone else as the voucher to get you to believe him. So we have to describe these people correctly. They're very intelligent. They can read people. They know what you don't love about yourself. One of the biggest things that I always preach on this show is authenticity and self-love. You don't love yourself even a little bit, and there's a predator out there. They're going to grab that string, and they're going to pull the fuck out of it. They're going to run away, and you're not going to be able to get anything, any footing. Yeah. up another excellent point there was never any small talk with with robert like if you sat around the table there was never any uh how's the weather hey who won the game last night uh, boy i love the buckeyes etc cetera, etc cetera, that kind of thing um and if there was something that was bothering you gary or there was something bothering you jay or if you sat down at the table and he knew that you guys were a little doubtful of him there would be no hey let's try and build a bridge of friendship maybe let's go get coffee next week and talk about it he would go right to the weakest link and he knew it and you could press that button and you were not done until he was done destroying and manipulating that button, whatever it is mm. in you. So just as you say, you know, again, brilliantly, he could identify that and attack it. And um, there was no subtlety. And so you're like, we have five kids and the kids would see this. So the kids got to see the way I was treated. And no human being would want to witness what happened to me at the hands of Uncle Robert and my wife and say, boy, I'd like to go through that because it was horrendous. It was horrible the way they, not physically, but spiritually, mentally, and emotionally abused me. And, you know, at the time I was so weak, I just kind of took it. I was like defenseless. And so then that's another control mechanism where everyone else in the cult sees this and says, holy smokes, I don't want to go through that. So now you're even more reverent towards the cult leader, because you know, as you said, Jay, it's like he can see inside my mind. He knows what I'm thinking. Mm. How does he know that? Because he gave you your glasses. Yeah. He told you what you're supposed to see. He's interpreting your vision. If somebody is that placed in that position within your life, 
and they're in it. That is the most control you could possibly have. To be the interpreter for someone's eyes and ears and to tell them that their own God-given senses are not capable of making the deductions that this man is capable of, you're yeah. in a world of hurt in that situation. And then I I really like to to point out the fact that when someone like yourself has a spouse involved with the two, I think we should bring it up again. It's harder to doubt someone you love and someone else at the same time. Right. That's too fatiguing. You can't oh. do that. It's a circle that will never work. You'll end up giving up. You'll get beat down. Yeah, the, the phrase I use is cognitive dissonance. So for mm. years, I love my wife. She has two master's degrees. I adore her, love being married. So she's a very smart person. And yet she believes and reveres this guy that for many years I thought was an absolute quack. So here's this cognitive dissonance. I love her. I respect her. But she agrees with this guy. How is this possible? And so all of this kind of uh, exhausting mental gymnastics that I'm trying to go through in my mind to say, you know what? My wife loves and adores this guy, Uncle Robert. Boy, I wish he wasn't a quack. I wish he was really brilliant. <laughs> and then I convince myself over the years that he is. And one of the ways I do that, or, or may, let's say that's maybe impressed upon me, is cult leaders don't allow questions. And I always like to say, and this is obvious, I didn't make it up, but the truth doesn't mind to be questioned. The truth no. loves questions. The truth doesn't hide from questions. It only has well, one thing to tell you. Yeah. The truth. And yet every time I would question him, well, wait a minute, what do you mean, you know, the, all the Jews are out to control? Like, I, you know, I, my buddy from high school and college was Jewish. I was in his wedding. He was in mine. I can guarantee you, Dan has no idea what you're talking about. He's not out to get anybody. Like, and I would never get an answer. The answer always was, Peter, why are you so stupid? You can't understand me. Yeah. That was really, in a nutshell, the only question uh, answer I would get to my questions. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I always laugh when I think about the sheer magnitude that people believe conspiracies can get to with regard to regular everyday people. I'm like, there is no possible way this is happening because I know Sarah, Mark, and John can't keep a secret for 10 minutes. And this is supposed to be amongst 10 million? No right. way this is happening. Like, how are we taking this? But we do. We start to believe that there's some kind of ulterior motive to everybody else. When in reality, we're all just worried about what other people think of us. Right. And I think partly the reason um, some of these ideas take root is because then it, it gives us the ability to say, well, we're smart because we figured it out. You know, we, mm. we, it out. We, we saw that this is what's really going on. So therefore, we're, we're smarter than everybody else. Um, did you get to the point in the book where it talks about casinos? Because I think that's another one that'd be kind of funny and interesting to talk about. Dude, I, no, I did not get to the casinos. And I wish I had, because now Gary has a, a lot of familiarity with that world. So I'm curious to see how this unfolds. Oh, Gary, you're going to love this. So uh, every summer, my in-laws would go down to, Robert lived in Southern California. We all lived in Idaho and Montana. And they were teachers, so they would spend a couple of weeks with him in, in Southern California over the summer. And then they would always stop by our place on the way home while I was still married. And they had a halo effect. In other words, whatever Uncle Robert was talking about, they could not stop talking about. And one year it was casinos. And my father-in-law told me that casinos were the true churches in America. And that all the churches we go to on Sunday were a waste of time. And the true churches were in the casinos. And I knew, don't argue, because Uncle Robert said it, and he's going to fight it to the death. So he believed that anybody could go into a casino, regardless of your profession, your bank account, whatever, your success in life, and be blessed by the Lord. And I would say, okay, I'm going to try, try to keep it open mind here. 
fine, but I see people worshiping money. I don't see people worshiping the Lord in a casino. And then there was an Indian casino uh, on, on a reservation in Northern Idaho, um, the Coeur d'Alene Casino, where they would go, so they, as in my wife, my in-laws and Robert, and they would call it the office. And um, I think problem they called it the office because they didn't want my kids to know, okay, we had five young kids at the time, that they were going to the casino. They would go every, every Friday night, every Friday and Saturday night, they would go to the casino. And that was literally their office because Robert did not have a real job. He did not have a paying job slash career. And he would go and that would be how he would earn his money by going to the casinos. So the casinos were simultaneously the true churches in America and the office. And I kid you not. That is so weird. <laughs> Wait, when? So this dude was able to maintain his position by going to a casino every Friday and making the money to continue living the way he was. You know, I'm, I don't pretend to be the smartest guy in the world, but, you know, casinos are big, fancy, beautiful buildings because we give them money. Yeah. And the house always wins, right? Yeah. And so somehow, though, yeah. Paige I and see parents, right there. <laughs> you know, believe that Uncle Robert could, could win and could beat the casino. Well, no, he was just there all the time. And oh, by the way, another biblical, well, another biblical principle is tithing. Where you take 10% yeah. of what you get and you give it to the church, to whatever organization you want. Well, we all tithe to Uncle Robert. So I remember a friend of mine, uh, like a year or two after I recovered, I'm talking on the phone with her. And she says, wait a minute, Peter, you guys sent him money every month. And he went to the casino all the time. And I remember thinking, yeah. boy, when you say it like that, it doesn't sound good. That, that was a short road, wasn't it? As soon as those two sentences were put together, a lot of the mess came out of there. You're like, oh, shit. Yeah. Isn't there anti-gambling stuff in the Bible? Say it again. Isn't there anti-gambling passages in the Bible? You know, it's, it's not as black and white as you would think. Yeah. Um, but it's been a while. Since yeah, I read it. And I, like, listen, I read the Bible cover to cover six times. I read the New Testament every year, once or twice. There are verses that you could probably apply to it, but I don't think yeah. the word gambling is ever in there. Um, I think but there's it, enough ancillary activities around gambling to screw you long before you get to the actual act. <laughs> well, and, and here's what I would say is that, you know, listen, if you want to go to, you know, gamble and, and blow 20 bucks on blackjack with a buddy's fine, go ahead and have fun, right? But really, you think this is your job? And the idea that, you know, the farmer, uh, grows food that we eat. The doctor heals us so that we don't die, right? The cop keeps us safe. What does the guy that gambles every Friday night do? Doesn't really do anything for anybody, does it? Right? Tip the waitress yeah. if yeah. you're yeah. nice. That's, yeah. that's about it. I mean, there's, I grew up in a bar, so I could probably tell you about a million things, characteristics yeah. this guy has. Like, yeah, it like, sounds like my Uncle Randy. Like, he's a dirtbag. Uncle Randy. It's, uh, it's it is fascinating. Um, and I remember I would tell people on my way out. So like, again, I kept all this secret. So, you know, my, my marriage implodes, my family's breaking up, and my greater family, my brothers and, and everybody else are hearing all these stories. And I would tell them what's going on. And they would immediately have this reaction like, you've got to be kidding me, this is horrible. And for me, I was genuinely surprised because I had been brainwashed and accustomed to, well, what is wrong with this? Because it, it had been portrayed as so normal to me over all these years. But mm. like for you two, if, if you were to read some of the emails and letters Paige and Robert sent me, you wouldn't be able to get halfway through, which by the way, Jay, coming up later in the book, I quote a lot of these. So it's not a he said, she said. You no, know, I love this. Divorce. 
it's all in there. And it's, it is, it's mind-numbing what they wrote to me and what they believed. Being spoken in circles, just so you can be dropped off at the point that you were trying to get to, is BS. Mm-hmm. Confusing somebody en route to your point that you don't even know yet is BS. If you're inventing what you're going to explain to them during the sentence with which you're speaking, you're already fucked, right? This, this dude sounds like a piece of trash, man. I'm sorry that you went through this, and I'm sorry that you lost what appeared, it, it, as far as I'd gone in from what you've said now, that you truly loved your wife. You were enamored with her. And I do believe you when you say that a certain amount of her validation of him Gave you that jaded lens because it's super sad to see a familial unit as strong as yours and the the bond that you guys had be broken up by somebody that stood nothing to gain. Well, that's what people ask. Yeah, what did he gain out of this? He certainly wasn't getting rich because none of us were. But shortly after she left me, what really kind of started me, that wasn't right away. I didn't get my eyes and ears open to the truth right away. It took about a year. Think about that, right? Like I was brainwashed for two years. It took about a year to recover. But probably the most wicked thing about what Paige and Robert did to me, which, by the way, I do believe while Paige is responsible for everything she said that she's a victim too, but she's been brainwashed by sure. him just like I was. But shortly after she left, you know, here she leaves a faithful husband who had never cheated on her, never wanted to. So she's doing something completely unbiblical. So now Uncle Robert has to try and give her biblical cover for this. So then it was the idea was, well, Peter was never Christian, so he was never truly saved. So we were never truly married. And then around this time, I became the devil. I became Satan. I was mm. a sorcerer, a slander, a liar, a coward, no. an alien, a fraud, et cetera, et cetera, abusive, et cetera, et cetera. And by the way, we never even fought. I raised my voice at her one time in 20 years. I truly love this woman. Okay, so we're, she's teaching all the five children this because if you think about it, well, you know, I told all the kids, listen, I'm sorry. I took all the blame for this, the breakup, and I still love you and I love your mom. So for the kids, wait, if, if daddy loves mommy, why did mommy leave daddy? Oh, so Paige couldn't be responsible for this. So now she had to come up with, well, I love your daddy because he's the devil. So she starts to teach the kids this. And then what are you going to do if you're seven or nine and, and a very strong, powerful, smart woman tells you to your, your mother, the yeah, bearer yeah. Your mother. of life. I mean, that's your first God is your parent. So she tells all the kids that I'm the devil, Satan, sorcerer, liar, etc. So they believe it. So then Robert and Paige then start to use this kind of phraseology in emails and letters to me. You need to be as far away from the, the youngest three children because our, the older kids were kind of out of the house. Younger three were still quite young. They're with their mom now. I'm on my own. You need to be as far away from the kids as possible and just be a friend to the kids because you're really not the father, Peter. And you know it. You're just a dad. And oh, by the way, you're just a bloodline. You're just a spurry daughter. So I had my kids say this to me. You're just a bloodline. Why do you think you can tell me what to do, et cetera, et cetera? And when that started to happen, I knew that that was wicked and that was wrong. And why that happened? I'll tell you why. Because in cults, the leaders blur the lines of the nuclear family Mm -hmm. so that the grandparents, the parents, the kids, the grandkids all become children of the leader. So my father-in-law called him dad. We called him Uncle Robert. And our kids called him Grandpa Bob. So guys, if I'm a bloodline and I'm a sperm donor and mommy thinks he's the devil to Satan, who do you think their new dad is going to be? Not a very long leap, is it? No. Robert was going to take over. 
does that do to a man to have his children taken away from him by another man through psychological manipulation? Because, I don't know if you got to this point in the book either, but Robert had two sons. Mm-hmm. And uh, those two sons had the children. The one. Yeah, they had, they had a daughter. They, so they no, I remember so they, being, the one being described as the hot one yes. by your wife and friend. Yes, right. right. So the Her two wife sons. and sister. Yeah, my sister-in-law, who was later shunned. Uh, so Uncle Robert now has no grandsons. He only has granddaughters. Mm. And Paige was so distraught that Robert's precious bloodline would not continue but would stop that when we were in our mid-40s, mid-40s, she's early 40s, uh, we had a date night, and we had five kids. We planned on having a sixth. We talked about it, having a Matthew. And, uh, and I, you know, never met Robert's daughter-in-laws. I never met his granddaughters. Paige wanted to become a surrogate and have Uncle Robert's grandson through one of the sons, who I'd met once. And I was not only furious, but aghast. You've got to be kidding me. So here it is a few years before she leaves me and is impugning me and demeaning me and mocking me as a sperm donor in a bloodline. She wanted to preserve Uncle Robert's bloodline, provide him a male grandson so that his bloodline could continue through Robert's son. Yeah, that's pretty bad, right? That's it's, it's pretty awful. But that shows you the level of brainwashing that she was under. And so, of course, I was against it. And I thought, this, are you going to be kidding me? And I what said, a weird-ass well, chess move is that? Who wakes said, up, eats their Wheaties, and decides they're going to try to get their friend's kid to have their child against the will of their husband? Like, I'm, I'm just trying to think about shaving with this kind of manipulation going through the head at the same time. Doesn't so, work well. Apparently, it was Paige's idea. But again, that shows you her devotion mm. and adoration and brainwashing that she says to Robert, this is what I want to do. She hadn't even told the son. And I'm like, are you going to have sex with him? No, we'll be in vitro. All right. What if you have a daughter? Will you try again? She's like, yeah, I don't care if I have five daughters. I'll keep trying until I have a male grandson. And of course, I was against it. I was appalled by the idea, which then made me further uh, in the category of the bad guy. Of course. And Paige and Robert are now that much closer. Mm. So you've left. You're now on your own, recovering, finding your faith rekindling your love with life. Mm-hmm. I would say reading through the things that I, I did on, on what you enjoy doing the outdoors, yep. those types of things. Yep. Um, if you could speak to Peter standing in that position in the beginning, what would you tell him in, to prepare himself to be able to avoid further pain in that situation? Yeah, but it's funny after, you know, going over Eckhart Tolle and the power of now, you would mm-hmm. ask that question, but it's a good question because it's still, it's instructive. Because it's like, somebody again, else's now. Exactly, right. Like, you know, again, my pain and suffering, which is in the past, because I'm great now. I'm a thousand million times stronger than I ever was. You can tell. Uh, obviously, yeah. My faith in what the Lord has been able to do by me hitting rock bottom, I am a million times stronger. My faith is so much more rich and strong and vibrant because of this. I wish I could have learned differently, but I am a million times stronger because of it. So yeah, so now, okay, what could somebody out there learn from my experience? Again, when I go back in time, I think, well, where could I go back to to really have changed the gears of history? And, and I would have had to go back right to where she read the dream. And even then, who knows? Maybe mm-hmm. uh, I could not have changed anything. Here's what I would tell people. Here's really the main takeaway. 
is that it was the isolation, the cutting off of fellowship that enabled all of this to happen. So, you know, mm. some people can see this, some people can't. But if you cut off my thumb, my thumb dies. I don't. Okay, the thumb cannot live without the rest of me. And so, again, that's a biblical term, talks about fellowship with the body of Christ, just basically other believers, whatever you believe in. But in the Christian world, we all are the part of the body of Christ. It's, you know, it's figurative language. And we got completely separated to where we left church after church. We stopped going to church. We would just talk to Uncle Robert on the phone. So there was nobody else. There was no Gary, there was no Jay saying, um, you know, Peter, that guy's kind of odd. Let's go sit down and a cup of coffee. Could you tell me about this? And then you could warn me and talk me through and say, boy, Peter, I don't know, man, I love you, buddy, but this doesn't sound good. We didn't have that in our lives. So when we were totally isolated, we had one voice to listen to. And it was a madman's voice. And if I had stayed in fellowship, whether it is Bible study or book club or Friday night beers, if I had stayed in fellowship and communication with my historical friends, high school, college, neighbors, relatives, I think you'd have a different story. Now, just because you are isolated doesn't mean you're in a cult. But if you are very active in your community, and again, not just one group, but I'm talking book club, bowling, mm. whatever it is, it's going to be a lot harder for one voice to manipulate and become the only voice. That is the biggest danger. And they know it. That's why the first move is the isolation. Separate from exactly. the family, the friends, and like, you can't, you can't achieve that if going to work every day with a bunch of people, you got a bunch of buddies and close to their family because they're all going to be like, this guy's nuts. And eventually it'll wear, you know, it'll wear it down. But I think as soon as they pull you away, that's the rough part. Exactly. Yeah, I think you just, it was a perfect storm. The woman you love, the isolation, and a guy that just spent every moment of his life like studying and like thinking about how to do this to people. Did I answer your question? You did. You answered my question. I think that um, I'd like to say just briefly, I believe that one of the greatest tools to prevent these types of scenarios throughout life where someone else gains control over your self-love or your thoughts of who you are, um, and that is that we have to understand that we're perfect the way we are, that we aren't flawed to begin with, and that there's nothing that anybody can hold over us if we love ourselves unconditionally. There's no, we're not at a deficit to life. We're, we're not in need if we love ourselves unconditionally so that someone can replace our issues with themselves or plant seeds and things like that. I always like to to believe that the more that we love ourselves, the more confidence we have, the less opportunity there is for things to infiltrate that don't belong. Well, it's your show, and I don't mean to guys the reins on your parade, but that would be actually not the biblical viewpoint. I know what you're getting at. I would just add in that once you have surrendered your life to the Lord, then yes, you're where you just described. And we can, we can always agree to disagree or how right. we look at it. But in my, I believe that at the root of most religions is that we're supposed to love each other and ourselves and respect what we've been given. Um, and I think that 
for me to be anything but me, the way that I was intended to be, is a slap in the face of whomever or whatever made me. And that's simply where I come from on that. Sorry about that. I would agree with that too, because you know, the Lord took the time to create you. And, you. and it's, it's whatever the picture is for whomever Lord is, just understand that you were made that way. And that is a lot smarter than me. I can't create me. Like, who am I to say? <laughs> but I'm not going to take the word of other people to give me my worth. And that's, that's what I am trying to convey is that self-worth comes from self doesn't come from outside. And um, I appreciate that you have such strength in, in your vulnerability and with your familial bonds to discuss things like this in front of God and everybody <laughs> makes you, you know, a target to yourself because you have to continually look back at what you've gone through and second guess it. But it seems as if you have really put a lot of things to rest and that your confidence in what it is that you're putting out there now is going to resonate with people that find themselves in similar situations. So we can say Eckhart Tolle, you know, the power of now, this type of thing. But it is always somebody's now. We're just in different cycles of each other's lives. So if we have something that comes up, it is our duty to stand up and raise a red flag and say, hey, look, guys, this is something that you might want to avoid. I can't right. tell you not to. But I can show you how I changed my path, and I can stand here as an example. If I can stand here as an example, then other people will maybe find their way too. Exactly. Like, I don't look at what I'm doing or, you know, writing you know, a book, a memoir, dwelling on the past. I don't look at it that way. I look at it as I went through something really bad, but I learned a lot. So I'm mm -hmm. going to share what I learned with others, and hopefully that will help you. Is it tough to do that? Uh, you know, it's to go out there, be vulnerable and tell everybody your story and be judged and questioned and, and everything that comes along with it. How long did it take you to say like, hey, you know, I, there's some good I could do with the world by sharing this and, and to get out there and start talking about it? So, you know, it's interesting because unfortunately what happened was we, we have five kids. I don't want to get into too much, but obviously the legal battle once Paige decided to divorce me about where the kids would go took many years. And of course, Cults are abusive towards kids, so I knew I didn't want them in that scenario. Mm -hmm. The cults agree with me, thankfully, and so the three youngest kids you know, did live with me for the last five years. It's still an ongoing battle, but they have learned and grown a lot. So one of my lawyers is like, could you just you know, give me five pages of, you know, when you were married, when the kids were born, et cetera. So that five pages became 10, became 20, and then during COVID, when everybody's at home, it just came mm -hmm. out of me. I just... I could not move my fingers on the keyboard fast enough. I sat in my computer, wrote four or five hours a day. And it was incredibly therapeutic. Unbelievable. I was going to say, I, love I, I think that I, I'm only interjecting here because I think that you have hit on something for millions of people across the globe during that time frame. That pause button, that stick in the spoke of the proverbial tires that is society and the way we go over and over and over again, that moment of clarity, I think that there were two types of people that came out of the pandemic. There were those that crumbled with it and there were those that came out of it a lot cleaner. Getting rid of a lot of baggage, finding out that a lot of the things they were doing every single day was repetitive and that it was keeping them from looking around them versus, you know, the, the life of just checking blocks over and over again. They, a lot of people found themselves, a lot of the creators that Gary and I work with are straight out of the pandemic. They're one minute they were 
doing, you know, some kind of solution architecture or something like that. And the next thing, they're a podcaster. It's really fucking weird. Gary doesn't think that word exists. I'm saying myself, I'm just being a jackass. But the those types of jobs, we see people now that are musicians, artists, writers, all these things, things that they never bet on themselves before. They came out of this pandemic. I think that's, it's amazing that you did this. I, I, I can't say I loved COVID and the pandemic. I've got very strong views about it, but I can't sit still. And so I loved that freedom. And I didn't, you know, sleep until 10 o'clock. I was up early and I just started writing. And it gave me the time because, you know, I sell real estate during the day. It gave me the time to get this book done. Unbelievably cathartic, therapeutic. Because again, with my story, there was a lot there I didn't know. And then as I was able to write it, look back, read all these mm-hmm. emails, letters, and the original dream letter and figure it out, man, it was like putting together this fascinating puzzle of finding these old archaeological artifacts buried for 20 years. And it was very helpful. And I hope it can help others. I think it will. It definitely will. I think it absolutely will. Gary, do you have any questions you want to wrap up with? I was going to say, it'll definitely help people, you know, to, to see somebody like you that's obviously really smart, you know, educated and, you know, everybody will sit there and think like, oh, that could never happen to me. But when you're in it, you think like, you know, you start to question yourself and everything that you believe. But when you can see somebody that been through it, got out, their life's much better. You know, I think like a lot of people, you know, if they hear this, it just takes one little spark, I think, to get somebody mm-hmm. to start believing in themselves and, and start on that that path, like you're saying earlier, like the one break, you know, like as soon as, as soon as there's a little break, I think, you know, that's when people run and they get away from, and it doesn't have to be a call. It could be an abusive relationship or a job or anywhere else where somebody else is controlling you through manipulation or anything like that. And you think there's no other, you know, no other way out or no other reality for you. I think more people see the success stories, the better. Yeah, I, I would, I would agree with that. It's well said, Gary. Um, we have to see where our energy is being dedicated to at the end of the day. Um, everything's a pendulum, swings back and forth. And if we're dedicated to something that is not making any forward momentum or creating any good, then we're just swinging. We're not doing anything worth a damn. Um, do you have any, um, anything that you want to put out before we go? You want to tell people where to find you, where to get the book? Sure. Um, Definitely want to give them a chance to uh, to purchase it. Um, you can find it on Amazon. That's where I got it. Yeah. So, and it's, again, the book is Stop the Tall Man, Save the Tiger. It was an Amazon bestseller. Uh, obviously, you can find it on Amazon. You can also find a bit more about me. I did write another book about college basketball, about faith in basketball called the Blue Team. So, my website is authorpeteryoung.com. I absolutely oh, love that. That book, that's a, uh, is that fiction? That's a novel? The other one? It is. It's based on my life, but I always tell people it's fiction because the main character is good and the team was good. That's where the fiction comes in. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Well, you're a brilliant writer. I'm going to check out that book too because um, the way that you weave a tapestry of descriptions is super cool. So I want to get into that book too, especially since there's a little bit of fictitiousness in it. I like a little bit of of the, the fun stuff. And right, I'm working so, on the sequel to the Blue Team as well. That's, that will be out here in 2024. Check you out, man. You can't, <laughs> you can't stop it. Once that fire is lit, yeah. yep. it's it's uncontainable. Yep. That's what it's all about. Well, I appreciate you, Gary. I appreciate you as well. Remember, everybody, be cool and keep learning.